think I'm a little bit taller, but <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, okay, let me read from First Corinthians um, chapter 15, verses 12 through 34. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of God. Good morning. My name is Eric Julianto. I wanted to welcome all of you to Redeemer this morning. Super excited to unpack the words of God with you this morning and special greeting to all of you. If, if this is your first time visiting to Redeemer, welcome and a special greeting to you and also for all the mothers and mom-to-be, happy Mother's Day as well. So I wanted to start today with A quote from N.T. Wright, that if I can move this forward, I hope so. Maybe, no? Nope. 
I can go backwards. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> I can go forward. Uh, so this is a quote from N.T. Wright as we uh, spend our time together here in the book of Corinthians. So, so this is what it says. Uh, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means that Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. So that's, uh, I thought, a pretty, pretty convicting, powerful quote from N.T. Wright as we, as we open up uh, words together this morning. So we've been journeying through the book of First Corinthians, and last week we heard you know, from Pastor Mark the first importance of the resurrection of Christ, as Apostle Paul explained to us. So this is again a quote from last week. So this is from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3 to 8. So it read the following, For I delivered to you as, as of first importance for what I received, that Christ died for our sin in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and to the twelve, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though have, some have fallen asleep that he appeared to James, to all apostles, less of all, appeared also to me. So you will notice in this very short uh, section alone that Apostle Paul put a very heavy emphasis on the fact that Christ had been raised. So, you know, the word appeared, you know, repeated many times there. And I thought, very, I, I thought it was very interesting. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So there was a statistic there. So those 500, most of them still alive. So Paul essentially saying, hey, if you want me, if you want to fact check me, go to those people, right? You can, I can give you address. I can give you a phone number. You can check it yourself. Christ has indeed been raised, right? So, so, this, is, so this week we're going to see Paul building up on this idea, right? The, the resurrection was truly a historical event, right? It's truly real. So he's going to build up this idea this week, uh, but he's going to take a different, slightly different approach. So he's going to make an appeal to the readers, to all of us, to the first, you know, Christian in Corinth, and then he's going to make the appeal in a very personal way. So in essence, Paul is going to explain to us, so his main thesis is that the resurrection of Christ impacts not just the history, but it does make a difference in one's individual's life. So in order to do that, Paul is, uh, is, is, very, uh, you know, is, is, is very neat here. So he asks basically two set of questions. So he asks two basic questions. So first he asks, what if Christ has not been raised? And then he will turn around 
to the other side of the table, and then he will ask, what if Christ has been raised? So two basic questions. Uh, now, before we jump in into you know, kind of his reasoning, his logical reasoning on, on, on both questions, it's worth noting as well. So you, you heard it uh, last week as well from Pastor Mark that the Christian in Corinth uh, had a pretty controversial idea about resurrection. And, you know, and they were heavily influenced by the Greek philosophy, right? The Greek culture in those day and age, very different. So the Greeks essentially believe that the body, you know, your body, my body was essentially evil and that the soul, the spirit inside you was good. So that's what the Greek believe. Uh, so when a man dies, the spirit is essentially freed, right? Freed from the body. It's a liberation uh, you know, exercise. And then the sinful body, right? The body that was buried or cremated was dead and forgotten. So in one respect, the Greek considered that death was, you know, again, liberation of the spirit from the evil body. So the idea of literal resurrection in the Greek minds was wholly rejected, right? So unfortunately, this kind of thinking, this kind of concept permeate, you know, to the Christian in Corinth. You know, the Christian in Corinth, they bought through this reasoning, right? Again, they were influenced in their culture. And then some of them, many of them also start rejecting the idea of bodily resurrection. So that was the backdrop of Paul, uh, Paul, uh, Paul opening statement here. In verse 12 and 13, Paul immediately start attacking that bodily resurrection, right? He said, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So that was the first thing that Paul wanted to address, that there was indeed such a thing of resurrection of the dead, and it started with Christ. So, so we're going to look at, again, two basic tenets for, for the question. So we'll, we'll consider these two scenarios in, in, uh, in sequence here. So we'll start with the not first. So what if Christ has not been raised? So if Christ has not been raised, according to verse 14 to 18 to 19 here, there's a series of cascading sets of implication that follow. So what are those implications? Well, here they are, right? So if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is vain. That is in verse 14. Your faith is in vain. Verse 14. They are false witnesses. 15. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those who have died have gone, have perished. And we are of all men most to be pitied. So as you can see, if the historical event of Christ raising from the dead did not occur, everything falls apart, right? Everything falls apart like a house of cards. So verse 14 to me particularly is, uh, is very conflicting. So, so the word that is being repeated there is in vain, right? So NIV used the word useless. 
so the Greek word for, for this particular word is the word uh, kinos. Uh, so the literal translation of the word is, is lacking content uh, or empty. Uh, so, by definition, uh, you would agree with me, things that are empty are without power, right? They are, you know, they can't, they, they won't do anything. Things that are empty can't do anything, won't do anything. So, so, I was reflecting on this, you know, argument a little bit. I was reflecting on, you know, kind of this experience. So, a few years ago, uh, Noel and I was chatting a little bit before the service. So, you know, I, I used to be in a, in a job where I travel quite a bit. So, you know, I usually traveled for an extended period of days, several days at a time. And on my off day, you know, when I didn't have to work, I love strolling around the city, kind of walking around, being adventurous, seeing different things. And I remembered in one occasion, I, you know, I was walking around the city and, you know, it, I'd been walking, you know, maybe for a couple hours. And then, as I was walking, and then I realized something, that my phone had ran out of battery. So now, all of a sudden, I found myself, you know, in the city. This happened to be a city where I didn't speak the language, didn't, didn't really know the character, uh, what is being written. But when this piece of, you know, unit, right, ran out of battery, so I found myself with nothing, right? No GPS, no connectivity, nobody to call, can't call, you know, Uber or the Uber equivalent in, in that country. There's no search engine. Uh, so, so again, this piece of device, while it is amazing technology, right? Without power, right? Without kinos, this had become useless, right? Pretty much worthless. It's, it's, it's nothing, it's no significant uh, to me. But here's the worst part though. When I did not have this unit, right, when I did not have this device, didn't have my phone with no battery, the worst part was I could not, I could not accomplish my purpose, which at that very point in time, my purpose was to going back to my hotel, right? <laughs> so so that, was, that was a, you know, it's a silly illustration, but again, it's driving the point that without power, there's no purpose that can be achieved. So I was reflecting on this experience, right? So apparently, you know, my life had relied so heavily on this phone that this phone become crucial to my survival. Uh, but in the same manner, right? If you, if, if you want to be, uh, you know, honest to yourself, right? Your faith is also a crucial element to, your, to who you are, right? As a human being, your faith is an integral piece of who you are. So without faith, right, you can't accomplish anything. So what Paul is saying is, if your faith is empty, again, that word again, kinos, if your faith, if your faith had no content, then whatever that you are doing in life, you know, as an individual, as a human being, it's empty, it's worthless, it's useless. So, so think about your own life mission statement. So I'll, I'll give you 15 seconds right now. Kind of recall what your vision statement is, you know, in your life. Or to create one if you don't have one. <laughs> so here's 15 seconds. What is your life mission statement or aspiration?
So some of you want to be a better parent, right? Better spouse, you know, student, employee. Uh, you want to make a better world. You want to fight poverty, injustice. Uh, you want to be part of a multi-ethnic church of influence. I hope that's your, one of your highest aspirations. Uh, what Paul's saying is, if Christ has not been raised, if that historical event did not occur, there's an implication here. If Christ did not raise, was not raised from the dead, your faith is empty, your mission in life, your mission statement that you just created 15, you know, a few minutes ago, those are just statements, right? It has no power whatsoever. So why? Well, we'll see it later uh, as Paul explaining this uh, in, in subsequent verse. Uh, why? It's, it's because those aspirations, they do not have eternal implication, right? If Christ has not been raised, everything, everything here is just a show, right? It's just a show without no content. In verse 19, Paul even get even be more personal here. So Paul says that we are of all people most be pitied, right? Not just be pitied, but most to be pitied, right? So there's a superlative here. So if Christ had not been raised, what Paul is saying, we are just a bunch of miserable people this morning gathering in a gym, in a stinky gym, <laughs> on a Sunday morning, sitting in literal darkness here, because there's no light here. So, so we are miserable. We are pitiable, right? In verse 29, Paul even says, so why do people being baptized, right? What's even the purpose for that? In verse 32, Paul says, well, if there's no content, there's no eternal implication of what we are doing here, well, let us just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So we are, of all people, most to be pitied. So I think that's a sad reality, right? Because, of course, we don't want our life to be pitiable, right? So before you start packing your bag and start leaving, you know, this, this, this gathering, right? I, I want you to consider the alternative, right? So the alternative here, so again, the first one is, what if Christ has not been raised? So Paul's going to turn around here, and Paul's going to ask another question. He asks, what if Christ has been raised? So that's the second scenario. So, so that's the first one. So take Christ out of, take resurrection of Christ. There is nothing left on which we rest faith. So the next set of questions Starting in verse 20, Paul is asking, what is Christ has been raised? Well, lo and behold, there is also a set of cascading implication here, just like uh, the first question. So starting in verse 20, Paul said, Christ is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. The word that is being repeated here is first fruit. Again, in verse 23, Christ is the first fruit. So this is a harvest term, so not something that we use on every day, right? This is not part of our everyday vocabulary, right? So we kind of lost the meaning a little bit. So in fact, in the Old Testament, there's the whole ritual, the Feast of the First Fruit. You can read that yourself so in Leviticus 23 if you want to make a note. So when you go home, you can check it out yourself. 
there's elaborate ritual for the people of Israel to celebrate the first fruit. But here's what's important. The first fruit refers to the first portion of installment of a harvest, right? So, so the term first fruit means the first in a long series. So naturally, if there are first fruit, there's first fruit, then there has to be second fruits, has to be third fruits, and so on and so forth. So Paul is arguing here that Christ is the first fruit. So Christ, raising from the dead, his resurrection from the dead, is only the first in a long series that's about to come, right? So Christ's resurrection makes possible the resurrection from the dead of others. In other words, Christ's resurrection is a promise, it's a pledge. Uh, you can also think, it, think of it as a down payment that guarantees that all who put faith in him will one day be raised as well. Later, Paul make a contrast between the old and the new order. So Paul says, you know, for as in Adam all die, so all in Christ shall also be made alive, right? What's going on here? So, you know, Paul make a distinction, right? There's an old, there's a new order, so there is Adam. There was once Adam, and then there is Christ now. So Adam was the first man created, right? So everyone entered this world in Adam. So you, 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 don't, you don't have to do anything, right? You were born in Adam. So by default, you know, we are born in Adam. Through Adam also, death entered history. So those who are identified with Adam, again, every person who has been born, right, myself included, is subject to death because of Adam's sinful act. So in Adam, all of us here today inherited a sin nature, and one day we will die. But that's not the end of it, right? So then Christ entered the world, and Christ, the Scripture said that Christ is the second and the last Adam. And Christ is also a better Adam. So where Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed. Adam died, but Christ defeated death. So likewise, though those of us today who are identified with Christ, every person who has been born again in Christ is no longer subject to death. Now it's subject to resurrection, to eternal life because of Christ's righteous act. So Paul says that in Christ, all who believe in him have inherited eternal life. Verse 22 says, in Christ, all shall be made alive. So if we ask the question again, so what if Christ has been raised? Now, the fact that Christ has been raised, it gives us a new meaning of resurrection, right? There's a content now in this resurrection, right? If Jesus was raised, then it means that sins have been defeated. Death has been conquered for once and all. So there is hope now that we will also be raised out of this broken world 
into a world one day where there is no suffering, no disease, no sin, no brokenness. So in verse 34, Paul says, because of that, right, be, be sober-minded, right? Come to your senses. Stop sinning because now there is an eternal implication because of what Christ has done, because of Christ has risen from the dead. So in resurrection of Christ, sin has been defeated, death has been conquered, there is hope. There is hope that we too will be raised one day of this broken world. So now, I know exactly what you're thinking at this very moment. So it's great that Christ was raised, you know, in the past. It's awesome to hear that we have future hope that we'll inherit eternal life one day. But your very exact question at this very moment, wait, wait a minute, what about now? Right? My life is still filled with pain, right? Disappointment, discouragement, right? We're still living in chaos today. My body's still aching, right? My job is killing me, right? My relationship with my family, with my neighbor, with, you know, fill in the blank is, is in trouble, right? So how does all this resurrection talks, right? Christ raised from the dead. We will all be raised one day. How does all of this change my circumstances today? Well, I'm glad that you asked the question because Paul is not done yet. So, so we're going to continue on. So Paul is arguing that there is, in fact, a correlation. Uh, you, can, you can see this as a threat, right, so to speak. There is a threat between the historical fact of Christ came resurrected from the dead that already happened, what is happening today, and then what will happen when we are raised with Christ. So we're going to read from 24 to 28. So I'm going to read this to you because this is a lot to unpack here. So this is verse 24, starting in verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers, Christ delivers, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So here's what Paul's saying to, to, to summarize this section. So at the point of resurrection, right, when Christ you know, burst to the tomb, right? At the point of resurrection, Christ began to reign as the risen and victorious king. So we sang that already this morning, right? Come, you people of the risen king. The risen Christ is in fact reigning at this very moment. Right now, Christ is reigning. All things in heavens and on earth place under the dominion of Jesus, King of Kings. Verse 27 there. And Christ will continue to reign until the last enemy is under his feet. 
So that's verse 25. So at this very moment, the victorious Christ is still fighting the battle, is still in the process of conquering those enemies. And that will come to an end when the final enemy is destroyed, which is death. Verse 26. When all said and done, final enemy is destroyed, death is destroyed, Christ, the victorious Christ, will then offer up the kingdom to his Father. Verse 24. So what does it mean for us? Well, this is the good news of the gospel this morning. So we live in a world today that is not governed by luck or by change or by chaos, right? So you and I, we live in the world that is ruled, ruled by the risen king. So even though it may seem that way sometimes, uh, we have to understand that there isn't any part of your life today at this very moment that is not ruled by the king, right? Even the bad ones, even the bad circumstances that you have today, it is under rule, right? And this is a different king, right? So a couple, couple weeks ago, there's a coronation of a new king, you know, in England, right? King Charles, right? So some of you may have seen the picture of seen, uh, since the, the clip, uh, but it was very elaborate, right? Beautiful churches, beautiful robe. Towards the end, I, I only glimpsed towards the end, there's even a golden chariot, so... Now, now the, the horses look miserable because it was raining, but the chariot was golden. Uh, but if you think about it, the earthly king, the earthly king is just that. It's just an earthly king, right? I mean, if you think about it, King Charles, he doesn't even run or rule his government, right? It runs by prime minister. He doesn't even rule his family, right? But there's an earthly king, right? The victorious Christ can do a lot more than that, right? So the victorious Christ is powerful. So you and I, we live today in, you know, what's been termed as already but not yet kingdom, right? So the king has begun to reign at the point of his resurrection. King Jesus has reigned. But the kingdom of God has not come to all in its fullness. Because it's still in the future. So Jesus also said in Matthew 13, so he, you may remember that he likens the kingdom of God as, as what? As a mustard seed, right? Kind of largely out of the sight, invisible to human eyes, but yet eventually grow into, into the greatest dream. So, so that's our, that's our uh, you know, that, that's our call today, right? We need to understand that we are living under the rule of King Jesus. Now, I grant you that simply recognizing that our life is under the reign of Jesus, that, well, that obviously does not and will not change your circumstances, right? My, my, my achy knee will, will still be, be there, right? It's, it's not, you know, just, just to know that it doesn't change your specific circumstances today. But hear me out. So, so I, I, would, I, would, I would ask you to consider this morning, though, 
that recognizing that there is a king, there is a king in charge at this very moment will give you rest, will give you comfort, will give you security. Because this king is a different king. This king is powerful. He can give you rest. So what does it look like to rest in God? So Psalm 131 has this picture of what it means to rest in God. And I'm, I'm, I'm reading this not because this is Mother's Day, but, but I do want to sneak in this, this verse uh, in, in Mother Day, Mother, Mother's Day here. So this is what Psalm 131. Uh, I do not occupy myself. So the question is, how, how, you know, how can I rest? Like, you know, uh, how, what does it look like to rest in God? So Psalm 131 say, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous to me. But I have come and quieted my soul. What is the picture being given? Like what? Like a wind child with its mother. Like a wind child is my soul within me. So to me, that's a very beautiful illustration of what it means to rest in King Jesus. If you have a child or if you've seen, you know, somebody's child, they are most comforted, they are most secured with its mother, right? Wind, like a wind child with its mother. So resting in God means trusting, right? What does the child wants the most, wants his mother presence, protection, and care. So same for us, resting in King Jesus, simply trusting in his presence, protection, and care. And there's more, right? So remember your mission statement that you just crafted a few, few moments ago, right? You want to be better parent, better spouse, student, employee, you want to make a better world. You want to fight for justice. You want to be part of multi-ethnic church of influence. Well, all of that is now becoming a reality because the, when the king is ruling, he is working in and through you to accomplish that. So that fact alone, the fact that the victorious king is working in and through you, that should motivate you to pursue things that are pleasing and honoring for the king. So by all means, continue to pursue your mission statement because it's no longer empty. It's not worthless. It has an implication. So I want to close with this. So, so last Easter, this past Easter, we were in Great Smoky Mountains, so we had a little vacation, Great Smoky Mountains. Uh, if you don't know, it's in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It's about four hours drive. Beautiful place. Uh, so it was kind of on the, on, on the Easter weekend. So on Easter Sunday, uh, we, we went to Sunrise Service. I don't know how many of you have been to, to Sunrise Service. This was my first very experience to attend a Sunrise Service. So some of you ask, well, what a sunrise surface? Well, I'll tell you what it is, right? So sunrise surface is when you get up so early in the morning when it's dark, you know, I don't know, 5 o'clock, uh, you, you get up so early in the morning, and then you 
climb to the mount, you drive to the mountain, right, for, you know, few, you know an hour, and then you kind of climb, climb the mountain uh, in Gatlinburg. They happen to have a cable car that will take you all the way to the mountain. And then, uh, you know, when, when you get way high in the mountain, you know, there's a surface, right, the surface happening. The surface, of course, because it's dark, it's cold, so the surface began when it was dark and cold, and you're kind of miserable, right, at that point. But here's the thing about the sunrise service, though. By the time the service ends, well, sunrise comes, right? Then the sun comes out, and then all of a sudden, all this dark coldness and everything turns into warm and beautiful uh, and then, you know, of course, the sun that is rising, symbolizing Christ, is rising from the dead, right? And then on top of that, you are at the highest peak of the mountain, so you see all His creation underneath you, beautiful color, beautiful everything. So bright, warm, cheerful, you can see everything. God is awesome. He is risen. Hallelujah. Well, that was the picture that I had in my head for the sunrise surface, as it turned out, when we were there, it's not anything like that. <laughs> so I got to tell you, the first part was true. It was dark, cold, you know, and then we were grumpy because we woke up, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning. Everything, all of that was true. But what had happened, though, uh, the two days leading to that Sunday, it rained nonstop where we were. So on that Sunday morning, it was foggy. It was so, it was a lot of moisture in the air. It was so foggy, could not even see anything beyond two feet in front of you. <laughs> so as you can tell, after the service, there was no sun whatsoever, right? <laughs> it, was, it was foggy, dark, and cold. The beginning of the service, after the service, it was the same exact thing. Foggy, cold, and dark. So... I have a picture of uh, where we were there. Oops. So that's where we were. So fog, big, big, thick clouds. So we, we were in the surface there, so you kind of see the, the leading musician there, but we couldn't see anything. It was still dark, cold, and, and everything. Well, but here's the thing, though. So even in the foggy days like that, the sun still rises, Right? You, you, would, you, know, you, you wouldn't argue with me on that, right? The sun still rises. Because what? Because nothing could, could not hold the rise to come up, right? The, the sun still, as it were, rules the earth, even when you don't see it. Even in the foggy days, even when you don't see it, you know that the sun is ruling the earth. So I I think that's the same thing in your life, right? Even in your foggy days, even when your days are filled with disappointment, chaos, you know, discouragement, and such and such, the King Jesus still rules in your life, even when you don't feel it. And why is that? Well, remember, the sun, there's nothing could not hold the sun to rise. So the King King Jesus is victorious, is still reigning because the stone, because the stone in front of the tomb could not hold him there. 
So Luke say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Because he is not there. He has risen. He is not here, but he has risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. So let us pray.